stay fly, stay fly. But I think one of the interesting things that we don't do enough of is to ask what were what uh, what what allowed black folks to endure such tragedy and hardship. Some of it was the ability to see a better life, to envision something something better, right? As a as a man or woman thinking in their heart, so are they. Our ancestors were thinking in their heart about a better life, not necessarily for themselves, but a better life for their children and their children's children. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests, unless we say we agree, unless explicitly stated. All right, welcome to another great episode of Get on Code. I have the good brother, and when I say bruh, I mean bruh. When I say brother, I mean brother. <laughs> the good brother, Nathaniel Turner. So welcome to another great episode of Get on Code. I'm really excited about today's conversation. We have a good brother who does a lot of great things. He's involved with the financial services world. He's involved with saving the world by saving and helping parents. He's involved with making sure that his son later on will save the world. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the good brother, Nathaniel A. Turner. How you doing, good brother? I'm good, brother. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm honored, man. When I get introductions like that, we could just end it. All right. All right. So let's get started, man. One of the things that really impressed me about you is that you survived 10 of the adverse childhood experiences. And that's a big deal. That's really a big deal. You know, when we look at people who survive some of these childhood traumatic experiences, and I want to bring them up on the screen so everybody knows what I'm speaking about. We're looking at physical abuse, mental abuse, incarcerated relatives, emotional abuse, you know, a mother who experienced violence, substance abuse, sexual abuse, divorce. So these are what we call the ACEs. Mm-hmm. How do you overcome them? So to be clear, you have I have a eight. lot of people that are going through them. How do you overcome yeah. them? So to be clear, I have eight of them, not 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 ten. So like, thank God for that. Um, <laughs> but my, my wife, my wife and I talk about that. She has one of them that I don't have. I have one of them that she doesn't have. Combined, we have nine of we. There's nine to ten. Um, like, how do you survive it? Part of it, the reason you, the way you survive it in some ways is that you don't even know that they exist. Like, I was born in 1965. So when I, I graduated from high school in 83, I, in 83, nobody was talking about ACEs. We didn't really talk about mental health. People could have, you know, difficult circumstances and you just, you just, you know, you just got through it as the best, as best as you possibly could. But I would say the other way that you get through it is that you find a community of people, you know, that old, adage that it takes a village to raise a child you find people who are willing to commit to helping you be successful and get through that stuff and you don't get through it alone you get through it with the assistance of others and now you're helping people to live their dreams yeah as best as, as best as I can like so those people who help me so I have this thing we call the starting five and you can cut me off at any time I know I have a I have a tendency I might tell you more than you than you asked for so you can always say Nate shut up uh, but I have a thing called the starting five there were five people outside of my household who helped me to be whatever it is that I am today 
and only and four of those five people are deceased and I couldn't pay them back if I wanted to. There's no amount of money that I could have offered them. The only thing they asked me to do was to essentially pay it for. And so that's that's what I'm efforting to do, you know, every day. In paying it forward, in paying, in paying it forward, does that help you deal with those eight out of 10 aces? Yeah, so so part of the, the part, one of the things that I do today that I didn't know to do before, um, I imagine daily my best life. And so when you are when you are living in your mind as someplace different than when you currently are, then the things that you've experienced don't have the same kind of effect. They don't have the same hold on you. So I don't those things that happened to me in the past are in the past. I mean, Mufasa says that, not Mufasa, um, my, one of my favorite movies being The Lion King, uh, but Rafiki says that he hits Simba in the head with a stick, and he says, ouch, what is that for? He said, it's in the past, it doesn't matter. And then that's really the way I approach life. Those things are in the past. I share them because I want other people to know what, what's what's possible, but they don't, they don't hinder me or direct the way that I live anymore. That's intriguing that you would use The Lion King uh, is there other symbolism in the Lion King that kind of informs your work that you do with people? Man, a, a lot of it. The Lion King is responsible for me being a father. If it had not been for the Lion King, I would not be a father. I, My wife and I went on a date and uh, I watched the Lion King and everybody else left the audience. Uh, um, so left the theater and I sat in the theater and cried like a baby because for the very first time I saw on the screen what was possible for me as a father. I saw a father who loved his son so much he would give his life for him and a son said at one point to his dad, we're pals. And I was like, okay, cool. I got something that I can work with. So yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff from The Lion King that I reference all the time. In fact, I wrote a book called uh, It's a Jungle Out There in tribute to The Lion King about strategies that I extracted from the Lion King that I thought parents could use. Oh, that's deep, brother. I, I think that Disney needs to know about that. <laughs> Disney needs to know about that, that you're a father because of the Lion King. I'm a father because of the Lion King. And you know, fact, a lot of us are fathers because of R. Kelly or from Switch <laughs> or from Luther Vandross, you know? <laughs> but you're a father because of the Lion King. I'm a father because of the Lion King, right? Because of because of Mufasa and Simba. Absolutely. In fact, man, um, my son's the naming ceremony that we gave him um, was very reminiscent to the opening scene of The Lion King. The ideal about creating a community for him, as you saw in The Lion King, is very much the way we went about raising him. So yeah, The Lion, Lion King has informed a, a lot of what I've done as a father. i say that. Now, one of the things you just said that tapped in my soul was the naming ceremony. Now, we had naming ceremonies for both of our children seven days after they were born. And, you know, people in the hospital, it was interesting. The first time they said, well, what are you going to name the child? And we said, we don't name my child till seven days later. And the lady looked at me and said, you can't do that. I said, if I were Jewish, would we be having this conversation? And she looked at me and said, okay. Uh, <laughs> we just need to have it on the sixth day here so we can turn into paperwork or you're going to have to do some extra stuff. 
And I said, that's no problem. That's no problem. Mm-hmm. And then when our second child came, the lady said, I'm not going to even ask. <laughs> uh, you just come in here by the sixth day and you know we did some readings we did a lot of prayer and meditation and we were led to the names of our children so tell me about the naming ceremony that you had for your children bruh it is crazy because you are the only person who i've ever met who's done something similar we waited to the morning of the eighth day at 12 o'clock we took him outside, you know, nude. We washed him, held him up to the heavens, similar to the scene you've seen in Roots, if, you, if you've seen Roots, and told him, hey, behold, the only one that's greater than you. We, again, we waited seven days, but before um, before he was born, because we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl, we picked, we picked 10 names, 10 male names, 10 female names. We then shared those names with the people that we considered to be part of his village, and we asked them, to take a look at the names. And when the child was born, we wanted them to come over and spend time with the child and help us to name the child. This was our, our thought was that if it is truly gonna be a village, then the more the village feels responsible for the child, the more likely they are to be a part, part of the child's life forever. So uh, we did we did that. And um, yeah, and we decided to give him a name um, that was something he could live into. not only live up to, but live into. So uh, his first name is Naeem, which is Arabic meaning benevolent. His middle name is Kahari, which is Swahili, which means kingly. My last name, Turner, is of course is a slave name. And then his, the name we gave him as his last name was Bandeli, which is Yoruba meaning born away from home. So when we put his name together, we told him his name is, you are benevolent king, despite being born from slavery and born away from home. And so his entire life, we've reminded him that he is a benevolent king. And we've asked him, you know, time and again, what do kings do? What do good kings do? And so, you know, where are you from, et cetera? So that's been a part of his maturation. Wow. I need to let that marinate for just a second. (laughs) Wow. Wow. It's intriguing. Those uh, friends and family who surrounded our family, my wife and I and my son, and then later on my daughter, who were from the continent or studied continental practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, We invited them over and they prayed around our children, you know, as before we, you know, named them. And it's interesting, those from the continent, when they came around, they gave them names as gifts. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, we're here in America, so they brought some baby gifts over, you know, they brought over the the diapers and the wipes. Right. And a baby food. And I was happy right. for all that. But intriguingly enough, people from the Gambia, from Nigeria, and from Ghana, and a sister from Ethiopia, they said, and we also named the children as a gift. And that's a special gift between us and your child. And it's, man, that's a beautiful thing. My father, who was a minister... Uh, Christian minister with the United Church of Christ. Okay. He would hold children up in the same way you saw in Roots mm-hmm. after he would baptize them. So he would baptize them first and then he would hold them up. Behold, the only thing greater than yourself. And yep. then he would whisper a message into their ear. Yep. And to hear that someone else was doing that very same thing, 
as you were raising your own Superman, that's that's beautiful. So tell me about raising Superman. Raising oh. Superman. Yeah, so after after I saw the Lion King and decided that, that I could actually be a be a father, um my my wife and I, because of the for example, because of the aces and recognizing that we you know, didn't come from the kind of background that suggested that we were going to be great parents, that we needed to to do some intentional. We wrote Harvard for an application. And so one of the things we wanted to do and one of the questions we asked ourselves, how, how different would our lives have been? If, we, for example, going to a different university at the time, I was a law student when I met her and um I was in law school and said, hey, if you're not in the top 5%, you're probably not going to get a job. But if I had been at Harvard, I'm like, hey, you know, I don't know if people say that to you at Harvard. I'll, I'll be here about Harvard as so-and-so is in a, as a Harvard attorney. So we wrote Harvard and got an application for, for, our, for our child uh, before the child was born. And then, and then we took the application from Harvard, broke it down and found that there are these three elements inside the application that we now use as what we call a life template today. The first element now, what we call is intellectual ambition, which is very different from from talking about raising children who are educated or children who do well on tests. Our idea was to raise someone who was enlightened, someone who would be a Renaissance person. The second thing was that we wanted to raise a child who was globally and culturally competent. So initially it was like, hey, we can we teach this child how to re- how to speak and read in another language? And then the third element was that we wanted to raise a child. This is what Harvard asked for, was someone who cared for something greater than themselves, which we now call humanitarian drive. So the three elements today that we use and we share with family are that we, we want to help raise children who are intellectually ambitious, children who are globally and culturally competent, and children who are, are humanitarian driven. I'm really just kind of blown away. Intellectually ambitious, mm-hmm. globally and culturally competent, and cares for something greater than then, themselves. Yeah. So now we can just call that humanitarian driven. Yep. And that that that's that's the that's the template for which we did everything in his life. I mean everything. So when if you if you had been part of his village when he was born, you'd come over to the house. You know, and you would have immediately walked into the baby's room and you would have heard language tapes. And so you would have heard German or French or or Spanish or Mandarin. We played language tapes in his crib. We didn't we didn't use we didn't play nursery rhymes. And we never spoke to him differently than you and I are speaking today. There was never any baby talk used in our house. Um, We danced, we sang, we exposed him to math and science as, as early as we possibly could. We were introduced to a, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Doman. I don't know him personally. I just know during the 70s, he wrote some books around how to give, how to teach babies to read, how to teach babies to do math. And he was working with children with brain injuries. And, and then he was able to teach those babies to read at 18 months and do math at 18 months. And I figured my, there's nothing wrong with my child's brain. So there's no reason my child should not be able to read. You know, before their two, second birthday and start doing, you know, simple math problems, certainly by then as well. So that was part of our that was part of our, our thing. We wanted to get as much done as soon as we possibly could with him. So um, our son today is I don't know if he's still fluent in, but he was fluent in four languages. 
and had an introduction to to uh, two additional languages. And he tested in the top 1%. And he finished high school at 16 and already had 33 college credits and packed his bags. And because he could speak another language and he played soccer, he moved to Brazil and played in a top soccer academy in Brazil. <laughs> and you have the plan. You have the strategy for our parents to do the same thing in raising Superman. Absolutely. I, we, my, my wife and I, so about, uh, so in 2014, he, he went off to college and um, we wrote, he, under his direction, we published Raising Superman. We published the book. And so, you know, a, a handful of people read the book and folks started saying, so, wow, like, you, why did you write your son letters? For, you know, from, from age two, I wrote them from two to 16. Those are letters in that book. And I explained to him, you know, about my relationship with my father wanting to to leave a written record of how much I love my son in the event that I messed it up like my father did. I wanted him to know at some point in time his father actually did love him. And if something were to happen to me, I wanted him to have essentially an instructional manual on how to navigate manhood. And so that's what those those letters became. When people start to ask about Naeem, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's great, you wrote your son letters, so what? What's the big deal about your son? Then I can say, oh, well, by the way, right? <laughs> by the way, he speaks four languages. He, he applied to 20, 31 of America's top engineering schools. He got accepted to 27 of them. He got more scholarship money than many graduating classes get uh, combined. He got it by himself. You know, when he finished his undergrad, he has seven PhD fellowships. Today, he's a four-year PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. So then people are like, oh, okay, hold on a second. Now, now we are willing to listen to you. And so, yeah, we've been trying to show families how to do the same and or better than we were able to do for him. Wow. And so you have online courses mm -hmm. and you have a book. Yeah, we've written. Provide, go ahead. No, no. So we've written. We're on our eighth book. So because we wrote, we wrote a children's book during the pandemic um, called "The Amazing World of STEM," which is a book least, loosely based off of Naim's childhood to try to encourage adults what's possible in the world through the eyes of this young brother named STEM, Stuart Tyson, Elmo Morgan. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the online course. When I click here and I go to Teachable, yep. you have yep. a course called The League of Extraordinary Parents. Right, right. So that's um, so what we what we done in that course is just a sort of an intro into how to help prepare your child um, for the best possible educational opportunities and how to do it with or without the assistance of schools. So one of the things we hear all the time, we hear complaints about what's going on in the school system. And we we completely agree with that. There are a lot of things that could be better. But one of the things I say to parents is that most parents are not doing all that they can do. So, so I say to families all the time, Aristotle famously said this, bring me a, bring me a child by seven, I'll show you the man. Right, that most of what our children become happens before age seven, and most of it happens before they go to school. So what we've been trying to do is to get parents to understand this huge opportunity, 
this responsibility, but also this huge opportunity to pour all kinds of stuff into your children so that when they get to school, their school not learning to read, their school reading to learn, their school not learning how to do math, their school doing what their competitors are doing in other countries, like in, Japan, in China, they're actually doing calculus in the third and fourth grade, as opposed to just figuring out how to add and subtract appropriately. So that's some of the stuff that you'll find in the course, how to pick schools, how to check schools, how to see if your child has a learning, uh, what your child's learning style is. And, and so how to look at the test that your children get to break down the test. So that how, how to use the test that they are taking to help them pick colleges, how to get ready for a particular college. Um, how, why not to just say, I want to send my child to college without a specific destination. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the, in the course. Man, I love that. <laughs> that that's that's extraordinary. That that's downright extraordinary. Now, in addition to your course, you mm-hmm. also have a website, yeah. the League of Extraordinary Parents. Parents. Yep. So, you just told me what the online course offers. Mm-hmm. I know what the book offers. What do I get when I peruse your website? So the League of Extraordinary Parents is a, is, a, is a combined venture with my wife and my son and I. So we decided that one of the things we, we know we needed to do desperately is have um, more time with parents. We needed to get parents to understand this. And so you, you, you're familiar with the, with the parable of the tree and the fruit. And we tell folks all the time that, you know, you can't expect to, grow, to, to get a peach if the seeds that you plant are apple. Right? And that, that parents, as much as we might complain about the outcomes of our children, more often than not, our children are exactly who we raise them to be. And so the ideal is to get parents to think more intentionally about what it is that we're doing and to create a legacy that for most of us will be the only way they will be remembered. Like I'm on this show with you today and it's wonderful, but the, but the, I have no expectations that when my time on this planet are, is over, anyone will remember me. But what I am convinced that I can do is that I can help my, elevate my son's life so much that if people know him, they'll be able to look back and say, oh yeah, you your daddy's name was Nate, right? And so we're trying to show other parents the very same thing. I'm just taking okay. taking this all in. I'm just right. taking this all in. Yeah. So yeah, this so we, is similar to what. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just so. so it, I, the last thing I'll say is so what we've been thinking about is about about Lamas. You mentioned you have children. When you when you go through Lamas, right? Lamas tells you how to eat ice chips, how to have you how to breathe, how to give your wife a pillow, etc. But what what no one ever tells you? Maybe they told you. They didn't tell me. But the 24 hours, 48 hours after your baby is born and they tell you you got to go, the only instructions that I had were on how to put the car seat in. I had no idea what I was doing as a parent. So I've got the most important, uh, most important, most divine creature known to man in my possession. And I don't know at all what to do with it. And so 
We're in 2021. It seems utterly ridiculous that we still are talking about there's no blueprint, there's no book. People don't know what they're doing. Yeah, we could have that if we want to. So that's what we decided we would try to do as best as we could for as many people who would listen. We would share what we knew. And you could, here's another way to raise a child. You can use it or not use it the same way you do Lamaze. But we wanted parents to have a head start. Beautiful. So when I go to the LXTRAP or League of Extraordinary Parents.com and I click on programs, you provide these great programs for family in the community and student services. Yep. How did you so, develop this business part of it? This is the part that's really intriguing me, man. You and your wife so, developed a business on service. So, when you so our son right is in many ways he is a um some would say a statistical anomaly right i'm from gary when i grew when i was growing up they said hey you know you get more likelihood that you're going to die before 25 than you're going to graduate from college okay so when you raise a child and your child uh, exceeds all these societal expectations in fact just obliterates those expectations then you can do one or two things. You can sit around and pat yourself on the back for how great it was that you were, or you can take this look at yourself and ask this. My son and I are the same people. We're, I'm from Gary. He's grown up mostly outside of Indianapolis. What makes the two of us different? Well, his mother and father figured out a platform to help him. So if I'm not willing to help other people, what I'm actually saying is that I wasn't worthy of being helped. And my wife feels the same way. So that's why we decided to come up with a way to help as many families as possible. And what we learned along the way by helping him, we just decided we would use those same tools and strategies to share with other families. I love this. I love this. So I want to do this. I want to give you two minutes. I'm not going to interrupt. There's some parents out there who are currently watching this live or maybe they're going to watch this in 10 years from now you have a chance to impart a message to them. Go. I would say to you, remember this, the children did not ask to be here. You, they are your invited guests. And as your invited guests, as any invited guest, it's your job to provide them with the most hospitable stay possible. If that's the age 18 or if that's the age 21, that's your responsibility. It is what our ancestors strive to do. It is why they were looking for the North Star. It was why they were trying to get off the plantation. It's why they were able to create colleges and universities in 1865 after just being emancipated in 1863. So so we have a responsibility to do a whole lot more than we're doing. And again, it's the tree and the fruit. The fruit cannot be any better than the tree. Parents got to get better so we can produce better offsprings who have an opportunity to change the world and live their best lives. I say that, man, I love that. I, I'm just kind of in wonderment, man. Just This <laughs> is beautiful. But I know that with all this great guidance, with all this great awareness, with all this great attention and the intentional strategies you use in raising your family, raising your family, raising your children, raising the relationship that you have with your wife, there had to be some challenges. Yeah, the biggest challenge is is raising me, right? So 
like you, you can't raise anything else until you've raised yourself. So one of the unique things, man, about about writing, I think I told you I wrote my son letters. One of the unique things I found by writing him was not only that it was cathartic because it helped me to sort of heal the, about the relationship I had or didn't have with my father, but it made me think intentionally about what I wanted for my child. See, one of the things that happens with children, at least my son, is that I'm a highly emotional human being. So if I'm excited and happy, everybody knows I'm excited and happy. And if I'm pissed off, everybody knows I'm pissed off. <laughs> but somewhere in between there is a valuable message that is missing. So when you're really excited about something, the child doesn't necessarily know what they did that caused the excitement. They don't know the steps to replicate. By the same token, when you're angry about something, they don't necessarily know the steps to correct so those things don't happen again. And I was thinking about this. If today is my last day and my son sees me pissed off, if all he ever sees is my face and hears my voice, he doesn't know what it is to do different, then I can't help him. I've been absolutely useless to him as a father. So I decided to write him, right? And if I would write him intentionally, I could say to him, yo, today you were disappointing, but here's why it was disappointing. And here's how you can correct that tomorrow. And if he does something great, I can say, yo, that was great. Today you won this track meet and you're, you know, you're national runner up. That's phenomenal. But you know what? You're not always going to run track. So here's what you should remember. That is this work ethic that got you here. Here's what you did that other people weren't willing to do. Right. And this is going to propel you forward in anything you do. So so I was writing them letters. But then here's the other part. Then I got to live it. Because you can't just tell him to do it, right? You can't. I can't tell him about how to be a better man. I can't tell him how to dream or tell him to, you know, put it all on the line or outwork other people. And he come home and see his old man laying on the couch eating some potato chips and just chilling and not doing anything more. I can't tell him about being humanitarian and I'm not giving back to anybody either. So the letters help me to be a better man. At least I would like to believe that. You, I guess you could have to ask my wife and my son if they believe that. But for me, that's what the letters also did beyond being cathartic. What are some of the things that did not happen with your father that you're doing with your son? Other so than writing the letters. Yeah. So I don't. I don't. So my father is. is my father passed in 2018. And so one of the unique things I said that time does a number of things. I don't necessarily know that time heals things, but it gives you a different perspective. So I'll give you an example. Um, when when I was when I was nine, my father and mother bought me a a Huffy dirt bike. It actually, wasn't Huffy because we couldn't afford Huffy. It was a Sears. Um, <laughs> it was a Sears version of the Huffy dirt bike. And my father said this to me. He said, "Don't you don't want that bike." Because next year, your mom and I are not going to have any money to buy you this bike. And next year, this bike's going to be too small for you. And you're going to want a 10-speed. Buy a 10-speed. Let's get you a 10-speed now. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. And when you know what happened, right? Of course, the next year, I wanted the 10-speed. And he says, I'm not buying you a bike, right? If a man wants to eat, a man has to work. So he walks me out to the garage. He points to the lawnmower, the shovel, and the rake. And he says, here, I'll give you the money to get your first tank of gas. And you figure out how to do the rest. Now, this was like in May. And my birthday's in July. In July, I had the $100 to buy my Schwinn bike. So 
at the time when I looked at my father, I just like, man, this dude, like every other kid's father buys, buys him stuff. And my father won't buy me anything. Why do I got to be a t- the 10 year old out working? Well, right. That's an incredible, valuable lesson that I learned that I couldn't see at the time, but I see differently, see differently now. So when my son is not cutting any grass or doing anything like that, but I would give him say, hey, write me a business plan or write me a business proposal for something that you want. So those those lessons that I learned from my father that I thought were negative um, transcended into something that I believe that I did was positive for, for my son. Intriguing, intriguing. Uh, in many ways, it sounds like you and I had the same pops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my father did some stuff that you was like, you know, in, in full respect for my sister, my mother. It's just not important to right to harp on that that stuff today. I just we just didn't have a great relationship. I went twenty years and I didn't talk to my father. Um, he's gone, and there are many days that I wish he was here, and I wish we could have figured out how to, to at the very least, least coexist and spend some time together. We couldn't figure it out. So what I've learned is that family is is functional and it's not DNA. So I have people who serve as a surrogate father for me today. And now I find myself serving as a surrogate father for other people. So what are you doing differently, differently than the generation my, that birthed you? Then my dad, I think one, one of the things one of the things I'm doing is so is I'm, I'm actually asking myself daily, what does my best life look like? And I'm, I'm actually working diligently to get there. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not settling for where I am and I'm not allowing the people around me to settle either. And I'm not saying I'm not criticizing. My father was, was quite critical. So I graduated from law school in 1994 in December and when I finished law school, my father said to me, you know, it's about time. You should have been a congressman or a senator by now. And I was like, dude, how does one come from where I came from with no assistance and pay for himself to go to school and so forth? How does that person do what you just described? Today, the difference between my dad and I is, you know what? Maybe he was right, but he didn't give me a pathway to make that happen. So in my son's life, my son says, I want to be U.S. Secretary of Energy. Here's three things I want to do. I want to be U.S. Secretary of Energy. I want to run my own tech company. And at some point, I want to be one of the, the nation's top um, engineering science uh, professors. So so now I'm working with him to to make those things a reality for him, as opposed to criticizing for him, him for where he's at at the present. I mean, that's... That that's that's one thing. Like you know, I'm not. I wasn't one of the fathers to beat. I wouldn't. I wasn't beating my child and as a form of discipline. I got a lot of that. Like man, I'm way too intelligent to not to, to need to beat somebody. My ancestors would beat. Why would I beat my child? So, like, but those are things my parents did because that was that's what they knew. I just figured what we know sometimes is not always the best thing to do. I didn't necessarily benefit from being beat by my father. So I'm like, I'm not going to beat my son. I want my son to fear me. I want my son to respect me. I want my son to feel like he should honor his mother and father. But I don't think honor comes from beating anybody. I mean, if it did, we'd still be on plantations. Like, 
So. Keep going, bro. You got more <laughs> no, to say. I hear. I'm just telling you. I mean, right. So, I mean, we would still be slaves if you if if you got honor from being beat. Who would beat more than slaves? So, and, but we couldn't wait. I mean, Harriet Tubman and others, and that turned my you know my namesake could not wait for that for that system to come to an end. So, I don't think honor comes from beating anyone. But parents still today believe you know this ideal of uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. I just I just didn't, didn't subscribe to that. Also, would say differently too, man, is that. When people wanted to help my son, I wanted those. I wanted to make sure that those people had a way to help my son. So, for example, I have a Jewish family that I call my Jewish parents, Stuart and Janine. And Stuart and Janine um, did me like uh, I shouldn't say me, my wife, my son, and I like this great honor that they helped us create for him a black mitzvah. Now they're Jewish; they gave their children bar mitzvahs. But they 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 instructed us on what that was like, so we created a a a ceremony for him for manhood when he turned 13. And I I don't think my father, my mother, or father would have ever known to reach out to people from different walks of life to help. But as I told you, one of the second element of of his development was to make sure he was globally and culturally competent, and so that was part of it. Wow. What are some things that men should do the moment they discover they're going to be a father? Uh, from conception? Yeah, the moment they, sh- they should take some notes about what it is that they would like to have happen for their child. So so if you imagine if you're a farmer and you're, you've got some seed and you have some land, you've, you're probably imagining what it's going to be like when those seed grow grow and you have fruits or vegetables and what you'll be able to do once you have harvest and who you better take care I think we think just as intentionally about being about being a parent. I also think fathers need to understand for example how a child's brain works that the first three years of a child's life could possibly be the most important period in a child's life. 70-80% of the brain development occurs from zero to three. And so sitting around and watching TV or putting your child in front of a, a screen or a tablet and not engaging with them is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And that simple stuff like singing and dancing and playing with your child and reading to your child and increasing your vocabulary and never speaking um, like a baby, like never speaking baby language to your child. For one thing, uh, I never called my son a boy. I refused to call him a boy. And anybody who would call him a boy, I'd have a fit with them. I said, he is an MIT. He's my man in training. And so I always looked at it that way. I think parents have to start thinking about what it is that we're producing, what we hope to see at the end, as opposed to talking about what we have right now, children are no more likely to be babies uh, ever again. They're always maturing to be men and women. If you and I were on a farm and we sang the song from Old McDonald and we talked about what Old McDonald was raising, at no point in time will we ever say Old McDonald was raising piglets or that he was raising chicks. We always talk about the end outcome. Old McDonald's raising chickens and cows and pigs. But when we talk about what we're doing in our community, we're always talking about raising boys and girls. We're not raising boys and girls. We're raising men and women and hopefully men and women who are capable of leading society and moving us forward. Tell us how we can design a life template 
that can give every child a real chance to succeed. So I just asked, where do you want, what do you want for your child? Again, I believe everything starts with hopes and dreams. I think, again, we, we'll talk about, let's say, for example, I'll take Nicole Hannah-Jones work, like the 1619 Project, and people look back to 1619 and they talk about, you know, the things that happen to black folks. But I think one of the interesting things that we don't do enough of is to ask what were what 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 allowed black folks to endure such tragedy and hardship some of it was the ability to see a better life to envision something something better right as a as a man or woman thinking in their heart so are they our ancestors were thinking in their heart about a better life not necessarily for themselves but a better life for their children and their children's children our ancestors were were emotional and had an emotional connection to things that were visual. So North Star, something that they could see, um, understanding the fruits and vegetables that they could eat if they were to escape, the things on the side of the road that there were poisons and so forth. They had some real intention and real direction about where, we, where they wanted to go. I think we have to find a way to recapture that and have a real intention about what it is we want for, for our life, but not just for our life, but more importantly for the lives of our ancestors for our our descendants. And I think my last question is why envisioning and journaling our best life? And you use the term best life, the phrase rather, best Mm -hmm. life repeatedly. I know it wasn't just because of the song. (laughs) But so, so why is envisioning not just visualizing, but then journaling your best life the most important part of someone's day so so I begin my day the first 8 to 14 minutes of every day journaling what I want for my life um, I found that there's some science behind it um, there's this thing called the reticular activating system I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time getting in the weeds of that but the point is that if you take 1% of your day to imagine what you want for the other 99% of the day, you're more likely to see that the 99% of the day matches what you wanted to happen in the 1%. So the first thing I do every day is write what I imagine my best life being. Now, when I say best life, it's important to say that I say this every day. There are people who read my journal. Actually, we're getting ready to publish this book called Journal Journey Forward, which is a collection of 55 journal entries with... Um, with prompts and reflections for people to, to use the journal for their own life. But I take in that first eight to 14 minutes, I, I imagine my best life. And why do I do that? Because sometimes the life that we live is just not the life we want to live. And the one thing that we do have control of is our thoughts. So if I have a chance to, if I have the opportunity to think about something better than the life I'm currently living, I'd be a fool not to do it. So each day I do that. I write in my journal about my best life. I have a mantra that I repeat over and over in my journal, that I'm in excellent health, I possess abundant wealth, I share timeless wisdom. I write a piece about my health. I say I'm 178 pounds of twisted steel with young Denzel chocolate chip sex appeal. I change that around a little bit every once in a while. I write that my responsibility is to is to the word who, and that when my time is up, that people should know that I helped serve and I made sure others know that their life matters. So for me, those are the elements that make up my best life. And that's what I strive to do each day. But I write it. 
And so that then becomes something that holds me accountable to making my efforts to see that happen. I also create a vision board that matches what it is that I write. So um, those two have that vision board all over all over my house. And my and so there's a version of it here in my office. There's a version of it upstairs in my kitchen. There's a version of it um, on my on wall next to the bed. There's it's on my laptop screen. It's on my phone screen. It's everywhere because I believe we're visual beings and we need reminders about what it is that we say that we want for our life. Wow. You've been spending time with the good brother who is named after Pastor Nat Turner. Yeah, yeah. I say, you're still setting people free. Intentionally, right? Yeah, yeah. my old man wanted to name me after his favorite hero and my mother wanted to give me a good Christian name and she had no idea that uh, he was naming me after Nat Turner. So, yeah. Wow. You can find out more about uh, the good brother Nat Turner NathanielAturner.com NathanielAturner.com You can also check out RaisingSuperman.com That's S-U-P-A Man.com RaisingSuperman.com And what we didn't talk about was his financial practice. He helps people with finances. And if you want to learn more about that, uh, IconoclassFinancial.com. I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Brother Nathaniel Turner, man, this has truly been a blessing. You've given not only the conceptual direction, but you gave strategy. And you also allowed us to see that accountability is important. You wrapped up accountability and making sure that you write down those things. So I, I really am truly appreciative. I feel blessed. I feel like a better person just from talking to you. Well, <laughs> and to find out you're a bruh as well. So root to the good bruh. <laughs> All right. Um, exactly. Hey, man, we want to thank you for being on Code. Our show, the Get On Code show, is focused on empowerment specifically black empowerment but in general the concept of empowerment I believe, we believe hopefully you'll believe that you can solve any of the problems that you're facing by journeying and becoming more empowered so get fly, stay fly get empowered stay empowered, share the empowerment, bless others with empowerment Stay floss, 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 stay floss. The views expressed by the guests are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. Stay floss, stay floss, stay floss, stay floss, stay floss. Stay conscious. Stay fly. Hey.